producer of The Hills Run Red and a current on-camera personality on YouTube's Collider Video Show. And let me just tell you, you're listening to the hottest, most radioactive podcast on the web, The Atomic Podcast. Intellectual stimulation by way of mobile devices. Welcome to another exciting episode of The Atomic Podcast. And here is your host of the show, Efren Guzman. Intellectual stimulation by way of mobile devices. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Atomic Podcast coming to you live from Twin Lakes, Wisconsin, where I blow up the news on a verbal scale. I am your host, Efren Guzman. My guest today, he joins me once again. He is a pundit on Collider Heroes. He's a producer, filmmaker, documentarian. Ladies and gentlemen, Robert Meyer Burnett. Rob, what's going on, man? Well, hello. It's, uh, it's great to be back again. You know, it's always, it's always nice to... Uh talk to you and um um it's nice to talk to somebody who is in a different part of the country other than los angeles yes i know you're you're probably envious you would love to go to wisconsin and visit the nice snow and the nice 16 degree weather right oh yeah well you know i've been in madison and uh, i did I, i did like wisconsin so yes i i i it's a big it's a big country out there and the more of it i'm really excited because i get to go to Nashville, Tennessee this weekend to start on a new project for the first time. And I've never been to Nashville. I've never been to Tennessee. So uh, I'm very excited. Uh, so we was Prince song, Alphabet Street. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to drive, drive my daddy's Thunderbird <laughs> girl to Tennessee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we were talking about the project um, um, offline. Um, talk about it right now. Well, I can't tell you too much, but it, it's, a, it's a feature documentary project about one of the greatest soldiers, American soldiers of the 20th century, uh, a guy named John K. Singlaub. And he actually published a book back in 1991 called Hazardous Duty, an American soldier in the 20th century. And that is, that's what we're working on. Uh, We're we're interviewing uh, the Major General. He's now 96 years old, and I'm going to Tennessee to interview him. To begin the documentary, and uh, it's about his life and his career, and what does it mean to be a soldier in America, and indeed, what is America? Yeah. You know, it's 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 fascinating for me because uh, John Singlaw began his career uh, in World War II, and then he uh, really was was instrumental in almost everything that happened from World War II through the Iran-Contra affair in the late 80s, in the, in the 80s, and his job as a soldier never changed. He said he said of his, himself and his career that his job was to fight totalitarianism wherever it appeared, whether it first be the Nazis and then later the communists and uh, the former Soviet Union. And what's interesting about that is his job never changed, but politics and public perception swirled around him. And in World War II, he was a great hero, but by the time he got to the end of his career, he was a, as he says, people were calling him a crypto-fascist and an insane right-wing nut and all kinds of things. And yet his job, from his perspective, always stayed the same. So I'm really looking forward to discussing his career and his life with him and, and, and bringing his story out to an even larger audience that might not know about it because he's one of the most incredible figures in all of modern american military history if not just american history the man's the man's incredible and i highly recommend if you want to read a a, 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 an amazing story get his book hazardous duty wow this is an interesting documentary and this is something this is something like out of 
out of your comfort zone, out of your element that you're doing, or this is something you always wanted to do? Well, no, I, I you know, I love, I love documentaries, mm-hmm. and I've always loved documentaries ever since I was a little kid. Uh, there was a, a documentary series that was on, it was a British documentary series, but I saw it on our local PBS affiliate, and a teacher I had named Mr. Wall would show these to us in, in junior high school. It was a documentary called Connections, uh, hosted by a man named James Burke. And Connections was a show that would start out like in ancient Egypt. And it would, it would show you an invention in ancient Egypt and how that invention kicked off another invention, which kicked off another invention and moved throughout history. And then at the end of the episode of Connections, you'd find out that the result of all of this was the atomic bomb. Or it was some other staggering invention. And you would see how how technology evolved and moved through history. And one invention ping-ponged off something else to create a third thing. And I, ever since then, I've been fascinated by the whole... There was also, when I was in elementary school, a documentary about uh, horrible, like, insects in Africa, like elephantitis and, you know, people that would kill her bees. And I love that documentary. So I've always loved documentaries, and I've spent the last 20 years um, documenting, making a lot of documentaries about movies. Uh, Everything from Lord of the Rings to X-Men to Superman to Star Trek The Next Generation. So I made a lot of documentaries about the motion picture and television industries, but I've never been able to make a doc. I've always wanted to make a documentary about something other than the motion picture business. And I haven't really found a subject matter that I, I, that really interested me enough. So many people have done things that I'm interested in better than I probably ever could. But this particular documentary was something that a friend of mine that I've worked with in the past brought to me and, and said, would you help me? And I, when I heard about it and then I read Major General John Singlob's book, I'm like, oh my God, count me in. This is fantastic. And uh, his stories are incredible. His career and life is incredible. So I leapt at the opportunity. How long do you think this documentary is going to take you for everything to finish out? Well, I budgeted and normally, you know, for documentaries, sometimes they can take years and years. Mm -hmm. But because a lot of the time you're covering a subject and you don't yet know what the exact story is. Mm Mm-hmm the story emerges as you're making your documentary because sometimes the actual act of even making a documentary influences the story you're trying to tell. But, uh, the major general is now 96 years old and he's been retired for quite some time and he's still with it. He's still a, a great interview subject. And what I'm, since it is a, a documentary about somebody's life, there's no surprises. So I set a production schedule of February 1st through August 31st to yeah, finish okay. the documentary. It's always good when you have a, a film project to, to uh, based on your budget, to have a good schedule worked out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the people that we know that we want to go interview, we're going we're gonna to interview them and start gathering as much material as we can um, f- for the documentary. So I'm really excited. I'm really excited. We start on Sunday. Oh, we wow. start Monday. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Congratulations on that, Rob. Yeah. You know. So, yeah, it's exciting. Uh, I was going to ask you um, off the subject. Um, 2017 has been the year of film, the year of movies. I think we've had a lot of great films this year. Well, I should say last year. 
Um, what, what, what were some of your favorite films? I know you talked about it a lot on Collider Heroes, but what are personal films that hold a special place in your heart that came out in 2017? Well, I'll tell you, there, there was a, a Polish musical horror movie that came out, and it's on Blu-ray. Criterion put it out on Blu-ray called The Lure. Ooh. That was one of my favorite movies of the year that has not shown up on many lists. Yeah, wow. I kid you not. It's about mermaids, uh, mermaids that uh, can sometimes be bad if they're pushed in a certain direction, and it's a it's a a horror musical, a Polish horror musical about mermaids. Wow, I never thought Pol- Polish horror musical in one sentence would would. Yeah, I know, <laughs> and it was directed by a woman, so uh, which is cool. They talk about. Uh, you know, it's funny, of all the talk about female directors, I would have thought that this particular movie would uh, have garnered more attention than it has, but it, 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 you know, Criterion put it out in October on Blu-ray, but it's quite uh, a fun film, and it's, look, it's certainly not for everybody, but it's definitely one of my favorite movies of the year, of 2017, that I saw. And, uh, you know, another movie that they also put out in October was uh, Personal Shopper that starred Kristen Stewart. Yeah. And it's a, uh, it's a quiet horror film uh, about a woman. Well, it's, not, it's a horror film, I guess, suspense, thriller, you could call it. But, but Kristen Stewart of Twilight film, the Twilight fame, um, uh, is stars in it. And she plays a, a personal shopper who shops for a famous actress to get her fashions and clothes and things. And she recently lost her brother, her twin brother. And uh, she may or may not being, be haunted by him, by his restless spirit. And it's all shot in France. And uh, it's, I really like that. I thought that was a, that was a great film. Wow, I haven't even heard about that. I gotta look into that. That's yeah, it, it's it's also. I mean, it, it's really a 2016 movie, but it came out in the United States in March, and uh, I think it's. I can't pronounce his last name, but it's directed by Oliver uh, Assayas. Okay. Uh, he's a French director, and uh, it's it's. I really liked it. You know, I really, and then of course, you know, there's so many great movies that have come out. Everything from like, of course, I loved Logan. Yes, you know Logan was 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 great as, as far as I really love Logan because it did something that I've been talking about for years, and we've been talking about Collider Heroes that you know a superhero film can be many different things, mm-hmm. and I think Logan showed us the possibility, and it did so. It took a character that had been on screen for the previous sixteen years and showed that character in a different light that film-going audiences might not have been familiar with, but anybody who read comics had been. You know, we know that the comic book characters, that when, when people who love comics don't think of comic books as quote-unquote comic books. Yeah. They're stories that we like with characters and situations and universes that we love, but comic book readers don't look down on the medium of comic books. But I think a lot of other people do. And I think it's still evident in, even in shows like Preacher, like I never thought we would get a TV series of Preacher that's now moving into its third season, but there's still 
there's an element of the way that show is made that is a little campy. Yeah. You know, the, it's got a little Sam Raimi flavor to it, which the comic book didn't have. Yeah. You know, the comic book was outlandish and crazy and over the top, but it was it, it was the characters and situations that made it that way. They didn't they didn't have to push it into this sort of surreal, ultra colorful or whatever world. And I, I think people who adapt comic books still sometimes suffer from that. They, they, they look down on the source material like, oh, it's just a comic. Yeah. But then when you look at something like The Walking Dead, that's relentlessly, you know, realistic. And it, it's not it's definitely set in the real world if the real world was overrun by zombies and everybody turned into an asshole. <laughs> but it's still, you know, it's still set in that real world. And I think one of the appeals of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and I thought we got we got three great entries in the Marvel Cinematic Universe this year. We've got Spider-Man Homecoming, you've got Guardians of the Galaxy 2, Volume 2, and Thor Ragnarok. And they were, all three of those movies are very different in terms of their tone, mm-hmm. which, I, which I really like. But, and of course, Thor was, Ragnarok was very Kirby-esque and a lot more colorful and quote-unquote comic booky than, say, Spider-Man Homecoming, which I really like the real-world take on, on the Vulture. And, and then, of course, Guardians of the Galaxy 2, a lot of people complained, a lot of fans didn't like it. But I, I, I found Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 to be a, a great film because it was a film about dysfunctional families. And, you know, you have Nebula and Gamora who reconcile in that film and you have of course star lord peter quill finding out who his father is and the whole movie is about you find out really what a monster his father was and that was unexpected but i think a lot of people once you get over the the freshness of the characters and the situations i think a lot of people expect a movie like guardians of the galaxy volume 2 to affect them the same way that the first one did the freshness and the novelty of the first film, but it can't. And yet the direction that it took being about ultimately being about families, people say, Oh, I didn't like it as much, but because it's dealing with more emotional issues at its core than a simple sci-fi good versus evil story. I think a lot of people are missing the point. And I think that there's a lot, a lot to love in guardians of the galaxy volume two. Yeah. Um, so I, I really enjoyed those the three Marvel movies that came out uh, this past year. And then, of course, we had Justice League, which is a movie I was wanting to see my whole life, but I found it tremendously <laughs> disappointing. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> so, yeah. But, you know, Hope Springs Eternal. I go into every single movie knowing how, uh, you know, being involved in the motion picture business now for 29 years, I want movies to be great because every movie is difficult to make. Mm-hmm. And it, they're the results of the hard work of so many different talented people that you want every movie to, to be great. And a lot of the time they aren't, you know, movies, there's a certain magic that takes place. You need alchemy the same way that Rumpelstiltskin could spin straw into gold. Great movies are kind of like that. You know, there's, there is, um, there is a, a magic and an alchemy to to the great movies because they become something greater than the sum of their parts. There's a whatever magic pixie dust you have with 
a talented director and talented actors, it, it takes it to that next level. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, there's been so many, I mean, I really like Molly's game. I really like seeing Aaron Sorkin direct his first feature. Now, was it as mind blowing as some other movies? No, uh, but it was based on a true story. And I, I love the actors. I loved Idris Elba and I loved seeing Jessica Chastain. And I like the whole milieu and the idea that this, this high stakes poker game in the world of entertainment and what happened to her three billboards, uh, was an interesting film. I didn't think it was as great as a lot of other people did, but Dunkirk, Christopher mm. Nolan's Dunkirk. I loved Dunkirk. That was like a World War II art film. Yeah. Um, Blade Runner 2049. I love that. I, I never would have thought, well, first of all, was Blade Runner 2049 like the best movie in the world? No, but you had a, a really interesting idea behind it it was really thoughtful it was an absolutely worthy sequel to blade runner and it, it depicted you know a world 30 years later and, and it was really depressing because clearly mankind is on its way out food is it was a, a huge famine event or something and now manufactured not only humans but but manufactured creatures might be the the fate of all of humanity and i, I really really liked the experience of Blade Runner 2049. I saw it in IMAX and you know, the thunderous sound system and just, I let the movie just kind of wash over me and um, really enjoyed it. Mm. How about um, The Last Jedi? The Last Jedi. Well, <laughs> I hated The Force Awakens. Okay. I mean, I, I, there's so much about The Force Awakens I didn't like. I understand what they had to do, but you know, Here's my, my thoughts about, I guess, all franchise, you know, long-running franchises that everybody loves. Mm -hmm. Back in 1991, when they were reviving Star Wars as a brand, Timothy Zahn released the, the, the Thrawn trilogy, the Heir to the Empire, uh, the three books, and Dark Horse Comics also published Dark Empire, which was a sequel to Return of the Jedi. It was a post-Jedi story about Luke and Leia and Han, and it was sort of the beginning of the extended universe. Those st stories were great. They were epic, worthy successors to Star Wars, to Return of the Jedi, and, and brought back our characters. And since then, we, if you were fans that read all this material, played video games, read books, read the comics, we were told these great epic stories about Han Solo's kids, you know, Mara Jade, who did Luke get married to, and what happened. And we've been seeing these things for a long time. So, if you're going to tell a story, a post-Jedi story, I think the first thing that I would do, if I was a filmmaker, was I would go and read what other stories had been told post-Jedi. The first thing, like, if I was J.J. Abrams... I would have had my assistants go out and get me Dark Empire, uh, the comics, Dark, Dark Empire 1 and 2, and go get the Timothy Zahn Thrawn, the three, the Thrawn trilogy, mm -hmm. which directly dealt with Luke and Han and Leia and Chewie. And, and I would read those things because those stories are already out there. And I know the problem in Hollywood, they're like, well, they're just comics or novels, so they don't count. But that's always been weird to me because... A lot of the great movies of all time are adaptations of books. Mm -hmm. So if they've already published these stories and they're already out there, 
at least read them so you can rip off the ideas that you already found in them because they're owned by Disney too. But they don't do that. They go back and they're like, no, we're going to reinvent it from the beginning. I'm going to come up with my great story. Well, I can guarantee you, a novelist like Timothy Zahn or the, the, the writing and, and art team in Dark Empire, they spent a lot of time coming up with their stories about what happened post-Return of the Jedi. Probably a lot more time than J.J. Abrams and Lawrence Kasdan did. Mm-hmm. And they had this mandate that they're basically, they're going to start and like, okay, we're going to, we have to create all new characters and we're going to basically retell the original trilogy again and tell that story again. Which, I understand the reasonings, reasoning behind it, but we live in a world where there's already really good stories about Luke and Han and Leia post-Jedi. And a lot of other new characters. Han Solo's son. Mm-hmm. Was it Jason Solo? Yeah, Jason Jason, or, and Jaina Solo. I mean, yeah. all those characters exist. Mm-hmm. So, as long-time Star Wars fans, as many people are, when you get a movie like Last Jedi that subverts expectation, yeah. you know, Luke is sad, mm-hmm. alone, you know, on an island somewhere, on Achito with his porgs and his caretakers. Mm-hmm. That is not the first uh, inclination that most fans have about what they would want to see happen with Luke. Mm-hmm. And, and, and also, I still, everyone tells me if I tweet this, well, it was in the books, the new tie-ins, you, they explain where the First Order and the Resistance came from. And I'm like, I don't... When I saw Star Wars as a kid, I understood, okay, these are space Nazis. Even at 10 years old, I I knew enough about world history. I understood what an empire was. I understood what the Roman Empire was. And this was the Nazi Roman Empire. I got it. I didn't need to know where they came from. They were already in place. You got enough, like in Star Wars, when you see the... Imperial officers bickering around the table. And Tarkin says, this bickering is pointless. You get a sense of, of, of this government and well, how will the, how will the, how will they maintain control without the, without the Senate? The Imperial Senate will, will no longer, whatever, sit still for this. You know, you hear a lot about the government and the world in Star Wars. So you don't ask yourself as a viewer, where did all this come from? But in the new trilogy, like the First Order, well, where did they come from? How were they allowed to grow so big? How could they build Starkiller Base? Like, why would you let them? If you already defeated the Empire, why? and who's funding the First Order? Like, they have a, apparently an unlimited supply of 20-mile-long Star Destroyers and Dreadnoughts and however many they need. They just show up. And where do they get all the people that are manning? If you've got, If the Empire was defeated, as we saw at the end of Jedi... And everybody's free. Why would you join the First Order? Mm. And people are saying, well, they kidnap kids. I'm like, okay, I get it. But they've got a pretty formidable fighting force. It's not like they're ISIS out there in (laughs) Syria or something. This is a very formidable, very well-financed fighting force. Where do they come from? Why were they allowed to get so big? Why is there still a resistance? Mm. I mean, none of that made sense to me. So all that being said... Um, 
did I like The Last Jedi? I liked it. I thought it was, you know, I thought it was interesting. It would not be, there, there's a lot of, of, of things about it that I thought were weird yeah. as far as storytelling is concerned. I mean, I like the idea of this chase, but yeah. if you're on a spaceship that's being chased and you're one, literally one step away from the First Order's dreadnoughts and Star Destroyers, in the middle of that chase, you've got two characters that light off to another planet and go on a secret mission, which they fail at. Uh, and then they come back and none of what they were doing at all worked. So that seemed to me like a strange way to tell that story. I mean, if, if the movie had opened and Rose and Finn were already on their mission, like if I had made that movie, I would have said, okay, we are trying to get to this rebel base yeah. on Crate, but we don't, we can't get into it. We don't know the secret codes because it's too old. There's no information on how to get in this space. We need somebody who knows how to get in there. And that's why you go to Canto Bight to find this old rebel soldier who knows how to get in, like the one guy. Yeah. And so you, you play that as like a Bond movie. Then there's the Chase stuff, and then there's the Luke stuff. So you've got these three storylines. But it just seemed a little odd. The, all the storytelling was odd. Then, of course, the disposition of Luke... This idea that Han Solo and Luke Skywalker both left Leia, for whatever reason, I just don't believe that they would ever have done that. Mm-hmm. Either one of them. I don't care what happened. You know, why Luke's going and, and moping around. Nobody wants to see Luke Skywalker be mopey. <laughs> you know, one of the great heroes of modern cinema history. You don't want to, People don't want to see it. I don't want to see that. Now... On one hand, it's a bold. If you're not that attached to the Star Wars franchise, it can be a bold, interesting choice. Mm-hmm. And I watched Last Jedi, and I I enjoyed watching it. But at the end of the day, I'm like, okay, I get it. He subverted the idea of a Star Wars movie. And and look, Last Jedi is still in the top ten highest-grossing films of all time. So the idea that it wasn't financially successful is simply not true. Yeah. It was a monster hit. And, and was it as a big a hit as The Force Awakens? No, but The Force Awakens was anomalous. The Force Awakens was way more successful than they even thought it was going to be. So to use The Force Awakens as a yardstick to judge Last Jedi on in terms of its financial um, success isn't fair. It, it, it's, it's disingenuous because Last Jedi was, was also hugely successful. But I just think, again... While I appreciate a lot of The Last Jedi, I don't necessarily... It wouldn't have been the story that I would have chosen to tell. Mm-hmm. I don't think. And I, I, I wonder I wonder about some of the choices. Like, if you're going to introduce a character like Snoke, well, where did he come from? Yeah. You know, why, why is he doing what he's doing? Is he a Jedi Master? How does he have pull over Kylo Ren? There's a lot of... And again, when you have movies and TV shows like Game of Thrones which do such a great job of showing you different factions and allegiances and factions that are at war with one another that are so interesting. It's difficult to watch a movie like Last Jedi because you want it to be as satisfying and as in-depth as other stories that you, you've experienced. Like you, you, Star Wars should be like Game of Thrones, with Knights of the Old Republic and 
with all the mythology that's been developed over the last 40 years. So when you get something that seems a little, I don't know, small in its scope, uh, I think you can't help but be a little disappointed by that. Yeah. You know, there's so many different opinions on The Last Jedi. And, you know, you're, you're talking about the way they showed Luke acting a different way. Let me ask you this. Um, for Star Trek Generations... <laughs> For Star Trek Generations, how you felt that they handled Kirk? You thought that was the proper send off for him to go, or do you thought? Kirk oh no, was no, different? I hated Star Trek Generations. Yeah, you know, I, I hated it because here's the thing. Um, you know, you have to you have to ask yourself about the, these great fictional characters. That here, here's here's this is going to seem a little a little like sidetrack, but I think one of the greatest modern sequels that brings in a new generation but also honors what has come before was Ryan Coogler's Creed. Oh, okay. I thought Creed was a phenomenal way of introducing, you know, Adonis Creed, Apollo Creed's son. Michael B. Jordan is, is Adonis Creed and and you it's a Rocky movie. It's set firmly in the Rocky franchise. It's in continuity with Rocky. It comes after the, the, the it's the seventh Rocky movie, the sixth sequel. Yeah. Comes after Rocky Balboa, another pretty good movie. But it's a whole new story about a whole new character with all new concerns, and yet it includes Rocky Balboa and honors him. You know, Rocky's old now, he obviously can't fight and it did a wonderful job of keeping the franchise going and reminding us all why we love Rocky in the first place. Mm-hmm. And, and that was the kind of thing that I really liked. To me, that was a great example of franchise building. Oh, okay. Whereas, whereas, you know, I go back to The Force Awakens, and immediately I have all these questions about where all this stuff came from. But that movie, like all of J.J. Abrams' work, with maybe the exception of Mission Impossible 3, it, it, those movies raise way more questions than they answer and I find them, the, the way J.J. Abrams tells the story to be very annoying. Because, first of all, that movie begins and you meet this Max von Sydow character. Mm-hmm. Who the fuck is that guy? <laughs> if you're going to hire Max von Sydow to be in your movie and you show him for literally five minutes and then kill him off, well, who is he? Yeah. Like, like Maz Kanata and this, you don't. You don't learn anything about... Nobody explains anything in that film. It's just, why is the Millennium Falcon... How did Han Solo lose the Millennium Falcon? And why has it been sitting in some out-of-the-way planet like Jakku? Mm-hmm. I don't believe the character of Han Solo would have ever allowed that to happen. Mm-hmm. And if he did allow it to happen, you need to tell me as an audience member why. Otherwise, I'm like, well, now you've, you've made Han Solo an idiot. Because the thing he cares most about in life, his ship, the Millennium Falcon and Chewbacca, he lost his ship. Well, if you're if you're giving me the return of Han Solo and you're 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 making that a decision, you're taking away the Millennium Falcon. There better be a damn good reason why you're doing it, mm-hmm. and and it needs to make sense to me as a viewer. Otherwise, I'm like, I don't believe your I do not believe your iteration of Han Solo. You've lost me as a viewer. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of people are just happy and they don't think it through because mm-hmm. audiences, I think, today are much more forgiving 
um, general audiences are. They don't care. They're like, oh, I'll get it. He, he lost the Millennium Falcon so at some point. Mm-hmm. Well, no. I mean, when you have a character, the Millennium Falcon is such a huge part of Han Solo's identity as a character. If you're going to take that away from him, you have to explain why. Yeah. And then when when the Millennium Falcon, as soon as it goes into space, when Finn and 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 Ray Ray can inexplicably fly the Millennium Falcon like a crack pilot through a star destroyer, as if she's been flying it for. I don't believe that. Mm. I don't believe that somebody can get behind the wheel of the Millennium Falcon and fly it as well as Ray does in The Force Awakens. I don't believe that. Even though it's a fantasy film, you're never going to get me to believe that she could do that. And, and the fact that she's doing it ruins my ability to suspend my disbelief. Well, I never heard anybody say it that eloquently like the way you did. Because I didn't, like, I didn't really, you're right, like, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm just like a general fan who watches it. Oh, the Millennium Falcon is there. There's Han Solo, he's back on the ship. Like, you know, we don't, like, when you sit and think about it, you're absolutely right. It's like Han Solo. Well, yeah, and it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't make sense. And then, and then a thing that really bothers me is that, so the Millennium Falcon goes into space for the first time in however long. Mm-hmm. And Han Solo and Chewbacca find it within, like, five minutes. <laughs> Yeah. I, I mean, I, I can't. That kind of sloppy storytelling that that is just arbitrary and random, and they just do it for the sake of expediency. Like we have to have on Solo find the Millennium Falcon, so let's just do it, whether it makes sense or not. That's what I felt like watching all of the Force Awakens. Wow. Like Star Killer Base is the size of a planet. How many hundreds of millions of droids? And men and women and creatures and aliens, what did they need to construct that base? Mm-hmm. We know the Death Star took at least 20 years to be built because we saw it at the end of Revenge of the Sith. Mm-hmm. And then we finally saw it in Star Wars, ran, finished. But uh, how long did Starkiller Gate base get? To, and it would have been one of the most giant construction projects ever. So why did they allow it? Why did the Resistance allow Starkiller Base to get built? And if you watch Force Awakens, the fact that they go to Starkiller Base is an afterthought. Yeah. There's nobody in the Resistance going, uh-oh, we got to take out Starkiller Base. It's only when Rey gets captured that anybody seems particularly interested in it. Yeah. And I'm like, what? <laughs> the whole, if you watch the original Star Wars, all, that movie is all about one thing. It's all about destroying the, the Death Star. Because the Death Star can destroy the Rebellion, and the entire movie, you learn about Luke and Jedis and all that. That's all peripheral information. But the plot, the plot relentlessly is moving forward, and it's all about getting the plans to Obi-Wan Kenobi, getting Obi-Wan Kenobi to Alderaan to get the plans to the Rebellion to hopefully destroy the Death Star. Mm -hmm. That's what that movie's about. And every bit of plot that moves the for, move, move Star Wars, the original Star Wars forward, is about that one thing. Yeah. And that's why it's relentlessly, narratively, so fun to watch. Because you always know exactly where you are. It's like, first, it's R2 and 3PO. They have the plans. Then it's R2 and 3PO and Luke. Then it's R2 and 3PO and Ben. Then it's R2 and 3PO and Ben and Han and Chewie. Mm-hmm. And then you're you're and when you are not following them, you're on the Death Star with Princess Leia and Vader and Tarkin. <laughs> Remind, reminded that this formidable battle station 
is what we're trying to blow up. Mm-hmm. So on one hand, you have the people that are have the plans to hopefully blow it up, and then the thing we're going to blow up. And they inevitably come together. And it's, it's, it's from a narrative standpoint and a storytelling standpoint, mm-hmm. it's the economy of storytelling, but it's got relentless forward momentum. And you're never... I mean, Last Jedi is all over the place. Mm-hmm. What's... There's not even a... Last Jedi doesn't even really have a plot. Because Luke does, is not given a, a task. You know, Ray comes and, okay, maybe I'll train you, sort of. Then she gets mad and leaves. And we don't, we don't know. We don't, we don't have... There's, the, the rebels are, are running away, but they're not going anywhere. Yeah. Until, oh, wait, there's an old rebel base. But we don't know that. And then you're going to go find there's, – there's hyperspace tracking. <laughs> so the, the, yeah. the whole plot of, of Last Jedi is murky at best. Whereas uh, what I don't understand is you go back and you watch the original Star Wars. The plot is relentless. It's simple. It works like a clock. It's clockwork. And you never not, don't – you never are, are anywhere – you never not know where you are in Star Wars. Yeah. Um, um, do you do you feel that um that uh, Kathleen Kennedy should have got some opinions from George Lucas um, in hindsight now? Well, I think there's a lot of George Lucas's original ideas for this trilogy that are in the trilogy, but no, I mean, I think the problem is is that they're trying to. I mean, what's funny is they want these movies to appeal to everyone, but. Kathleen Kennedy started out by making going after these young filmmakers, and Ryan Johnson was somebody that worked within the system, I think, very well. And it was interesting to see. There's a lot of things in Last Jedi I really like, like the idea that the Jedi are wrong. We saw that they were wrong. They got defeated in the in the uh, prequel trilogy, mm-hmm. and then we saw the remnants of the Jedi in the original trilogy, but. You know, we've never really seen the Jedi. They, they've never, uh, they've never been so good, really. <laughs> so the idea that that Luke is where he's at is kind of an interesting, but expected, or or we've been told to love the Jedi because the Jedi's are all badasses, and we saw them. But I like the idea that they subverted the idea that the Jedi were good. They're just they just believe one thing about the way the universe is. And who's to say that's uh, a bad thing? But I still don't understand. Like, I don't understand. What does Kylo Ren want? You know, I don't know. What's he going to do? He's going to take over the First Order. And what's his goal? Does he want to run the... There's been no... The problem with, I think, the new Star Wars movies, and a lot of science fiction, a lot of modern science fiction storytelling is certainly... Star Trek Discovery and other things, we don't, they don't know what story they're telling. It's this open-ended idea that, okay, we're going to make Star Wars movies all the time. Okay, but what's your story? I mean, Rogue One was interesting because they knew where they were going to wind up. It wasn't, but, but this new prequel trilogy is, it's Star Wars light. You know, we've, they've gone back and they've given us elements of everything from the original trilogy that people loved. But they don't. There was no overarching story. It, it clearly wasn't going anywhere that they had pre-planned, as Ryan Johnson 
admitted. Yeah. So where are they going to go? And in this day and age, it seems to me that it's pretty irresponsible, especially when you have the Lucas Story Group and they do such wonderful work on rebels and <laughs> other things that you'd think that they would want to know where their trilogy end and is going to wind up. But they don't. And so when you're watching the movie, when you feel that, when you know you're watching the second part of a three-part story, and you kind of feel like, well, obviously they don't know where they're going. It takes away the enjoyment of immersing yourself in a story because you feel that the story's not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's fair to your audience. Mm-hmm. You know, they're like, well, what do we care? We made 1.2 billion dollars. Yeah. Well, that's great, but <coughs> excuse me. Mm-hmm. There's such great genre storytelling now. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at Lord of the Rings, which I still think is probably the most successful modern trilogy, but it's based on a series of books and and they knew where they were going. Yeah. So the story had a beginning, a middle, and an end that they already, I mean, they had to figure out how to make that work cinematically. And it's a miracle what they pulled off. But it, it the Star Wars movie should, should have been given that consideration. This new trilogy should have been conceived as three movies from the get-go. And they knew where they were going to go. Because at the end of The Last Jedi, I'm like, okay, well, what do I have to look forward to next? Do I have anything to look forward to? I don't know. I mean, it's it's... It's really odd to me, whereas on the flip side, if you look at the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I know that they have a plan. Nope. You know, watching their movies unfold, and they've had a plan from the beginning. They're, they were leading up to Infinity War, and while the Marvel Cinematic Universe has been has had varying degrees of success, for the most part, I found them very fulfilling and fun times at the movies. Nope. Like, I was like, Ant-Man, how, how good can that be? But it turned out it was really good. Yep. You know, and, and, and they added Ant-Man's um, appearance in um, in uh, Civil War was so much fun. When Paul Rudd, like, meets Captain America for the first time, <laughs> that was great. Yeah. Uh, but um, um, but um, did you think, even from the first inception of the first Iron Man, you think there was Infinity War was already planned from the beginning, even from the Sam Jackson cameo? You no, think- no. But, but, but they knew... Once they saw, they knew they wanted to make Avengers. So once they saw that Iron Man and then Thor and then Captain America worked, once they knew those three movies had varying degrees of success, but they all worked, Mm -hmm. then they planned. Then they're like, okay, we got a plan. And that's, look, there's things like Iron Man 2 and people don't like the Mandarin from Iron Man 3, but whatever. They still have an, an overarching plan. And the way they've integrated their characters in other movies, it has been a satisfying look. I'm deliriously excited for Infinity War. And I'll, I'll, I'll admit to you, I, my, my anticipation is very, very high. Yeah. And I'm setting myself up for disappointment. But <laughs> I do think that that film is going to be, if it's not the most, the most giant science fiction fantasy superhero explosion of all time i will be disappointed so maybe i'm setting myself up but i do think that they knew where they were going for at least the last 10 movies yeah you're right and and i think we're all going to be very satisfied by it i'd be very surprised if we're not plus remember 
they, even though these things are loosely based on the comic book stories they come from, Winter Soldier was part of Ed Brubaker's run on Captain America. Civil War was already a great, it's the movie version is different than the comic version, but they still had the idea, the central conceit of Steve Rogers and Tony Stark having a beef with one another and believing in two different things. That was already in the comics that they drew from. The Infinity War is the same thing. You, you have the Infinity Gauntlet, the Infinity War, and the Infinity Crusade comics that they can take out elements from those things and put them in the movie. So they're not making these movies in a vacuum. They're being inspired by, and they're going back and they're looking at some of their favorite storylines that have previously appeared in the comics and adapting what works best cinematically. And I think that's why... Thor Ragnarok made $800 million worldwide. The third Thor movie. Those movies have been on an upward earning trajectory. And, you know, it's because they they go back and Taika Waititi looked at the old Kirby Thor comics. I mean, people forget Thor turned into a frog at one point in the Thor comics. (laughs) Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, he did. (laughs) You know, there's Beta Ray Bill. There's all kinds of craziness in these comics. So there's there's precedent for lots of humor and things like that. And there's already so much information, like in the Star Wars universe, why somebody doesn't go, okay, we're going to, we spent $4 billion. Why don't we sit down and plot? I mean, it's interesting after Last Jedi, Disney liked Ryan Johnson so much, they hired him to, to spearhead a new trilogy, which I'm actually really excited about. Because Disney clearly as a filmmaker who can work with a studio, forget what movie's making, he clearly knows how to work with a studio and work within the studio system. That's why they gave him the opportunity to do a new trilogy. And that's exciting to me because I think he is a great filmmaker and I think, I, I, mean, I love Brick, I like Looper, I like Brothers Bloom. I think he's, he's going to, and I like his episodes of Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. So I think Ryan Johnson's a legitimate filmmaker, but, you know, he basically subverted what a Star Wars movie is supposed to be. And and I think that a lot of the fan base did not get what they wanted from a Star Wars movie. Yeah. And maybe that's a good thing. I don't know, when I see that, that some fan did a version, did a cut of Last Jedi and cut all the women out, I'm like, well, that's everything wrong with modern fandom in a nutshell right there. Yeah. You know, these, these these kids that have never kissed a girl before. And they are still, you know, the, these Gamergate guys that, that, oh, I can't deal with women in my space. I'm like, yeah, don't you want to kiss a girl, man? It's better than gaming. But, you know, we're, we're moving away from that, I'm telling you. We're, we're going to soon live in a world of, of sex robots and no one's going to actually ever talk to a real person. And it's really weird. Yeah. Um, what's, what's your thoughts on Wonder Woman? Oh, I really like Wonder Woman a lot. I mean, I, I loved Gal Gadot as as, uh, as Wonder Woman. I thought, look, the movie was a pretty standard origin story. Yeah. But And I thought it was beautifully made. I thought, once again, the idea that you have to have these... I mean, Ares was better depicted in the George Perez run of Wonder Woman from the 80s, mm-hmm. which is why they picked him. But he was the, the villain was generic. But I, it's still interesting. I mean, there was a great twist when he's not who you think he is. Yeah. And um, I really liked Wonder Woman. I, I thought it was, I thought it was a lot of fun. I mean, I thought that's the way to 
that was your Captain America, the first Avenger. And I'm hoping the next Wonder Woman will be Wonder Woman, the Winter Soldier. Not literally, but it'll be that much, that satisfying. That it'll actually, you know, be about something. And Winter Soldier about, you know, the surveillance state. And Hydra and all that. It was, I really enjoyed that, that film quite a bit. It was surprising, and I would like to see Wonder Woman go in that, not the direction of Hydra, not literally exactly in the same direction, but to, to make it a, a a bigger, and a, make it a political thriller. Yeah. Like Winter Soldier, I'd love to see that, because I think it's great. Yeah. You know, but again, it, it requires a synergy between the studio that owns these properties, that's overseeing these properties, that's paying for them, and the filmmakers that come in to work on these projects. And I think Kevin Feige and Marvel, their model of working with innovative filmmakers like James Gunn, like the Russo brothers, like Taika Waititi, that is a great model because you get these auteurist directors that work within a studio system and work within expectations the studio has and they work together synergistically to create those Marvel movies. DC needs that. DC has been reactionary because Zack Snyder's vision worked. We saw it work in 300. They liked him for Watchmen. He did Man of Steel. But then when he kept doing his thing, uh, after Christopher Nolan's Batman, successful Batman trilogy, you know, then they backed away from his, his vision. But the studio has been meddling. They meddle with Suicide Squad. They meddle with Batman v Superman because you don't have a, a somebody at the top at the corporate level who understands what they're doing. Whereas Kevin Feige made 13 Marvel superhero movies before the MC universe was born. Everything from the Spider-Man movies, the X-Men movies, the Ghost Rider movies, the Daredevil, Daredevil film. You, he saw what worked and what didn't work. And he knew these things. And that's why the MC universe, MCU is so successful, because Kevin Feige saw what worked and what didn't, understands how to get filmmakers and work with them, and, and he calls the shots. But Warner Brothers doesn't have that. Warner Brothers is still a corporate entity that acts like a corporation acts. So it has a bit of an identity crisis, and they're trying to sell it to AT&T, which is a, which is a bigger corporation, but there's nobody running just the DC Movies. I mean, they've, they've hired uh, Walter Hamada, I think his last name is, and he's a good choice. But again, you know, they're, they're making these movies and they're trying to make them work and they're, they're following trends rather than setting trends. And I, I, I don't think that ever works well. Yeah. Um, what's your thoughts on the films of, of, of women in 2017 in films? You figure that last year was a good year for women in film and directors? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, look, here's here's the thing. Uh, women are are it, 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 this is I, I I hate hearing this because okay. the the fact everyone's talking about well there's not as, as many women as there is men directing in Hollywood. That's absolutely true. Mm-hmm. 100%. But that's because not as many women went into the field. It's not like there was the exact same amount of men and women trying to direct movies and women were being shut out. It's not true. Yeah. And and the, the fact is, there just weren't as many women trying to be directors as there were men. Now that field is opened up. Yeah. 
mm-hmm. and more and more women are going to enter the field and we're going to see more and more women directing, which I think is great. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the most lauded, acclaimed movies of the year was, was Greta Gerwig's Lady Bird. Yeah. You know, Greta Gerwig was an actor who then started working, collaborating with Noah Baumbach on his his stuff, and now she's surpassed him in terms of at least box office. Yeah. And I think it's great. I mean, you know, it's always better when we have more voices, more diverse voices telling stories because you get better perspectives and you get to see things we wouldn't normally get to see. You know, and, and, and we're getting uh, more, like, I... I can't imagine, like, I would love to know what it's like if I was, say, a black teenager right now, and I grew up as a fanatical science fiction, fantasy, and horror film fan, and I would be getting Black Panther. I mean, in terms of a studio spending $150 million on a film, a franchise property with a predominantly black cast, like, what does that say to a young African-American man or woman? in this day and age. That's representation on a scale we've never seen before. Yep. You know, and, and you've got a, a filmmaker in Ryan Coogler who, who did Fruitville Station and then did Creed. My love of Creed makes me hugely excited to see what he's done with Black Panther because he understands how to take previously existing worlds and work within those worlds. And I love Chad Bozeman as T'Challa. I mean, he was so great in, in Civil War. And the fact that we're getting something like that, that a major studio bank, that would never have happened 20 years ago. Yeah. And, and it, it, it shows the, the, the way that, that, that we are progressing. I mean, look, everybody wants the world to be the, the way they want immediately. And things change. You know, the world, the world is, 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 and with social media, what used to take 20 years now takes place 20, min- 20 minutes. You know, and it's it's, and everybody wants all of that change to be that quick. But the inroads that we're seeing, <clears throat> with like I was always a big fan of Catherine Bigelow. You know, to me, Catherine Bigelow made Near Dark. It came out in 1987, 31 years ago. And so, one of my favorite directors, and, and even before she made Near Dark, she co-directed a movie, a biker movie that starred Willem Dafoe called The Loveless, yeah. which I had seen. So. One of, she was always one of my favorite directors, and and she's obviously a female director. I mean, I loved Strange Days, which came out in '95. Mm-hmm. So I don't I don't think people should have a bias one way or another. It, it's, it shouldn't be about what color or gender a director is. It should be about the story and how it's told. Yeah. So, and in my mind, the more diverse we get the more diverse voices mm-hmm. to tell us even more interesting stories, the better off everybody is. Yeah. You know, we, so we're going to hear stories that we haven't heard before, told mm-hmm. in ways that we haven't seen before. And that's always exciting. Yeah. It's always exciting to get new perspectives and new voices mm-hmm. to hear from. Yeah. Because that's what makes life worth living. Exactly. And, and so I think it's, it's great to see, and I, I want to see female directors and writers and producers, showrunners make more and more inroads because it just bodes better for ev- for everyone. Yeah. everyone. Um, um, what does the future? <gasps> what, 
that. No, it's all right. Uh, what does the future hold for Robert Meyer Burnett in 2018, besides the documentary? Well, you know, I'm, I'm still editing this movie. It's kind of been put on hold, as many independent films do in post-production, looking for money and things like that. I've been editing this independent comedy now um, called Tango Shalom that I'd like to finish this year. Uh, I have a comedy special I directed uh, with with some black comedians I went to Belize with, of all places, yeah. uh, called Off the Grid Comedy that's going to be on Amazon that's hosted by uh, Faison Love. Yeah. And um, so that's coming out. It'll be, I, I don't know, like three or four months, I think. Okay. And... I'm also working on this Singlob documentary, and I'm trying to finance. 2018 marks 20 years since I've directed a feature film. Uh, my movie, the one and only movie I wrote and directed, Free Enterprise. Yeah. I hope, which I hope to get out on Blu-ray this year, uh, that stars Eric McCormack and William Shatner. I made 20 years ago, so I haven't directed a movie in 20 years. And I have a, a new movie that I'm working on that's an adaptation of a book. That is, a, a, it's a a, a woman's issue oriented film it's a it's a movie about reproductive rights that i've wanted to make for a very long time uh but i don't want, i don't want to talk about what it is until i i'm further along with it but i've got a great script and i'm looking for i'm trying to raise five million dollars wow. to to make this film yeah. and then another thing that i'm still working on is i i i wrote i didn't write it pardon me i did not write it the doctor wrote it my very good friend, Dr. Michael Schertz, he's an ER doctor in Oregon, we created, you can go to crisismedicine.com, I think it's actually crisis-medicine.com, if you punch crisis medicine into Google, um, it's a lecture series, and it stars him, and Mike was a Green Beret, and uh, now is an ER doctor, and he has created a pre- a series of lectures and skill stations and it's it's a whole it's it's hours and hours and hours of learning material it's like it's like a master class yeah. of him talking about like let's say you get stuck in an active shooter event like what happened in las vegas mm-hmm. it'll teach you how to save uh, maybe your own life but also the lives of people around you that might be injured in any active violent event whether it's an earthquake or a mudslide or a building collapse or an active shooter event, this lecture mm-hmm. series, it's called um, Crisis Medicine Tactical Casualty Care. Mm-hmm. And you can go and take the course at Crisis Medicine, which you can find on, on the internet. And I created all that. I directed, edited, production design, shot the lecture series. And it's pretty cool. I think it's a very important thing. Um, but uh, yeah, that you can see now. Oh, that's awesome, Rob. And um, yeah. what what does the fans have to look forward to in the next installment when you're on Collider Heroes? Just whatever daily news topic is on the air? Any, yeah, you yeah. know, I, I won't be on next week because I'll be shooting, but I hope to come back the week after that. And, um, you know, there's some changes at Collider. I hope everything works out. Okay. Um, but, yeah, I love doing the show. I've been on since April of 2015, so I think I've done, you know, Closing in, I've got to have done at least 175 episodes, I think, or something like that, which is, which is crazy. But I love doing the show, and I love talking about comic books and getting sweaty with Schnapp and Amy Dallin. And you know, there's there's been so much interesting stuff. I mean, there's so much great things happening in in that the comic entertainment space. I never, I mean, Black Lightning premiered. I never thought I'd see a Black Lightning TV series. It's unbelievable. <laughs> yep, you're right. You got Runaways on Hulu that was really good. Yeah. 
Uh, Cloak and Dagger is coming down the pike. It's just incredible what we've what we have an embarrassment of riches. Yeah. Um, As I said, we've we lived in great times. There's great stuff happening. Yeah. Um. Um. Yeah. Um. What is that quote you say? We live in wonderful times, right? That's what you said. Yeah. Yeah. We live in wonder. We live in wondrous times. We live in wondrous times. Yep. I mean, if you're a, if you're an old school geek like I am, an OG, um, original geek, I, I li- we live in a world to me of of truly live in a world of wonders. I never ever, I never dreamed I'd be getting an Avengers movie and a Black Lightning movie in the next couple months. I mean, it's just unbelievable where we're at uh, as far as comic books and science fiction, fantasy, and horror. It's it's incredible. Yep. And so. You know, it's like every day there's there's something new that I love coming down the pike. Stephen King's publishing novels, and like you know, I read I just finished his book we, he wrote with his son, Sleeping Beauties. I love that. He's got another book coming out in May. I mean, there's so much great stuff that that for me, I, I, everywhere I turn, there's not enough time in the in the day. As long as I can keep doing work and getting paid, so I can buy action figures and model kits and comic books and books and I'm fine. Okay. Um, my final question. This is a great time to be alive. Let me tell you. All right. I was going to tell you my final question for you is: What is Robert Myers Burnett' opinion on Donald Trump? <coughs> well, <laughs> here, here, here's this. This is the thing. Okay. Uh, I like you know I've always loved Star Trek my whole life. Yeah. And Star Trek is inherently an aspirational show about the best of the best of humanity. Mm-hmm. In order to be out there on the final frontier, exploring strange new worlds and seeking out new life and new civilizations, you have to be really good at your job. You have to be very, very smart. You have to rely on your colleagues. You have to delegate and understand that who the best people are for, for, for their jobs and, and in order to accomplish your tasks. Yeah. And I think that, that Donald Trump's presidency uh, especially with the fact that, that there are departments in the government, such as the State Department, that was vital. That was a, a department that, since Donald Trump has taken office, has never been filled. Uh, I don't think that Donald Trump's... Uh, he, to me, is has not been uh, acting with the Star Trek ideal in mind. I, I I have not seen a lot of intellectual, social, or uh, uh, civil excellence coming from him, and I um, that's that's worrisome to me. Now I don't know him personally, you know, so I I, I don't I would not attack the man on a personal level, even though I do on Twitter, yeah. but. Um, I think that our country uh, is clearly divided uh, in, in many deep ways, and I don't see Donald Trump as being somebody who is interested in uniting the country. And I think also the amount of time that he spent governing the nation is suspect. Yeah. I mean, 95 days golfing? <laughs> I, I, I mean, he literally... Yeah. They put out he he the First Amendment of our Constitution, which is one of the foundations of our democracy, is freedom of the press. That that is 
That's our First Amendment. Um, and Donald Trump has been delegitimizing our press mm-hmm. since he took office. That, to me, is dangerous. Yeah. Because, you know, a free press needs to be celebrated. Not, and, and he took, our president took the time out to uh, talk about fake news and diminish and attack other Americans. Now, it's one thing to have political debate. You guys, having an ideological debate over the issues is the heart of being an American. But to attack other American citizens as being liars or being unworthy uh, is not befitting of a president. And it's, it's not something that we should be doing. I'll tell you, whether there was collusion with the Russians or not, there is a, the, the fact is that our democracy, we used to think our democracy would be attacked by bombs and invading soldiers. Our democracy, the very fabric of our democracy, is under ongoing attack from our enemies that want to undermine our way of life by dividing us through information and disinformation. And we need to be ever, ever vigilant about facts and science and, and, and the fact that the color of our skin does not make us different from one another. You know, there's a funny thing. Clive, Clive Barker, the horror novelist who directed the movie Hellraiser, mm-hmm. he came to prominence with a series of short stories that were collected into the six volumes of the Books of Blood. And there was a quote in the front of the, the Books of Blood that I always remember. And the quote was, everyone is a book of, I'm paraphrasing, but the, the sentiment was, everyone is a book of blood. Because whenever we're opened, we're read. Meaning, you know, you slit someone open, everybody's yeah. red on the inside, our blood's yeah. pumping. Well, everybody's that way. I mean, the, the problem is, our skin color is an easy way to divide people into groups. I've always thought about, about uh, as an analogy, think about a dinner party that you, you might go to. And think yeah. about ten different groups of people from all over the world that recently have come to America. Let's say ones from Kenya or Congo or India or um, uh, Korea and China and Vietnam and Japan, Iceland, Norway, wherever. And you, you get those ten people and they come, come uh, to America and, and you, you have a dinner party. And you invite all of those people over and you, you say to them, okay, I want you to prepare a special dish, your specialty dish from your country uh, for this dinner party. Mm-hmm. And everybody comes to the dinner party. And and you're going to have a hell of a meal. You're going to taste things you've never tasted before. You're going to, you're going to, spices and, and, and textures and smells and all kinds of things that you've never experienced before at this dinner party. And, and isn't that a great thing? Because everybody has to eat. And yet, depending on where you're from and, and the, the diverse tastes and the diverse foods that you, you get from all over the world, I want to live in a world where I can go to those kinds of dinner parties. You know, and, and, and that requires 
a diverse group of people from diverse backgrounds who have come to America with the idea that that our way of life is going to benefit everybody in the long run, that they can make their fortunes here, they can achieve their dreams here, they can do whatever here. But we have to make a country that, that is welcoming because don't, don't, don't you want to go to a dinner party like that? Yeah. And if you use that dinner party as an analogy to getting people together to work on a project, mm-hmm. you're going to get thought processes and perspectives from all over the world and ways of doing things that might benefit your project mm-hmm. and might benefit uh, and accentuate and make better whatever it is you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the great strength of America is that we have to be welcoming to people from all over the world. That's not to say that we shouldn't regulate how those people get in here and we shouldn't make sure that they're vetted and they want to contribute to the American way of life. But, but when we start limiting the ability of people to do that, and we start making this country not um, favorable to people that want to come here, and even to scare them off, I don't think that benefits the country in the long run. Uh, because from my unique or, or my own perspective of the world, I have learned that it's, it's better to have diversity and new and interesting ideas and abilities than it is to not have them. And and what makes America strong is that we've allowed people to come to this country and contribute and bring their knowledge, bring their know-how, bring their culture, uh, bring their customs, bring their beliefs. And it's our tapestry of all of those things together that makes us stronger. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that the Trump presidency so far has not been conducive to that. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I think there's a lot of reasons for it, but, you know, again, like with, with movies, I, I want, I go into every movie hoping it's great because I know how hard it is to, to make films and, and how difficult it, it is, as we talked about earlier. And I, I hope that the Trump presidency will be a good presidency. I mean, I, I, I really do. I hope that I haven't seen much evidence of that, the way he's governed over the last year, um, which I don't understand. I, 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 I'm an elitist snob. I think that the best people should be doing the best job that they can. Like, why wouldn't you do that? Mm-hmm. Like I said, that was what Star Trek was all about. Let's get the best people for the jobs and put them out on the final frontier. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what uh, American Americans landed on the moon because the best people busted their ass for a decade to do that. And they were able to. President Kennedy threw down the gauntlet. We're going to do this not because it's easy, but because it's hard. And we did. We went to the moon. Yep. And and we should be we should be setting those kinds of goals for ourselves as a people. You know, let's go to the moon again. But let's whatever it is we we need to be doing, we could be doing it. And at the end of the day, you know, when when you die, you can't take money and you can't take houses and cars with you. You know, the only thing you can take with you is what kind of a person you were and what are you going to leave behind. And um, I think we need to start thinking about what we're leaving behind for the next generation. And rather than get what we can right now, why don't we think about where we want America to be in another 250 years and work toward that, mm-hmm. building that foundation so America can continue to grow? Yep. Agreed. 
Uh, Robert, thank you so much. Um, I want you to plug your social media, plug um, all your networks, plug anything. Sure. Well, you can you can watch all the episodes of Collider Heroes I was on on the Collider Video Network, which is on YouTube. And then Collider Heroes airs Monday and Wednesdays every uh, every week. You can find me on Twitter at Burnett, R-M, B-U-R-N-E-T-T-R-M, and I'm usually bitching and moaning about Star Trek Discovery or some other such thing, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, or you can find me on Facebook at Robert Meyer Burnett, or find me on Instagram at RM Burnett. And he loves and, Rush- and he loves Russian hotbots and hot toys. <laughs> oh yes, the, the the Russian hotbots. You know, it's so funny. These girls, these like these these hot these hot girls that are like twenty, and they have like one picture on Facebook, and they they friend you. I'm like, are you guys not? You're not fooling anyone. You know, if you want me to, if you want me to friend some Russian hotbot, then you've, you've got to give me a, a profile that I believe in. I need, I need to be able to suspend my disbelief in your bullshit profile before I'll let you be my friend on Facebook. <laughs> you, you must try harder, Russian hotbots. I'm on to you. <laughs> and if you want to get on his good side, make sure you send him a nice hot toy. Oh yeah, hot toys. The great and people are like, what are hot toys? Hot toys is a. Hong Kong toy company that makes the best action figures of all time. They're incredible. Incredible. People buy that, and that was the legendary Robert Meyer Burnett. And I hope everyone out there was intellectually stimulated by way of mobile devices. Have a good one, folks. <laughs>